We are not civilian providers that wear a uniform. We are soldiers who happen to have a very specialized technical skill. And we exist to serve the warfighter. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, Wardox has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome Army Brigadier General Sean Bagby. General Bagby earned a Doctor of Dental Medicine degree from the University of Pittsburgh, a Master's degree in Healthcare Administration from Baylor University, and a Master's degree in Strategic Studies from the U.S. Army War College. He completed oral and maxillofacial surgery residency training at Martin Luther King Jr. Drew Medical Center in Los Angeles, and fellowship training in OMS Trauma Surgery at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston. He is deployed to Southwest Asia where he commanded the 561st Medical Company and Dental Services. He currently serves as the Commanding General of the U.S. Army Regional Health Command Central and as the Chief of the U.S. Army Dental Corps. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. We're privileged to welcome Brigadier General Sean Bagby to Wardox. Sir, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for the invitation, and it's an honor to, to be able to spend time speaking with you. General Bagby, Tell us what led you to Army Medicine and what kept you in past your initial commitment. My entry into the military was through ROTC. Born and raised in Newark, New Jersey. My mom was a VA nurse. My father essentially finished fifth grade. There was no one in my family that had gone to college or was a doctor. And honestly, my entry into the professional world or being able to see myself as a dentist was because there was a dentist and actually an oral surgeon who worked at the community health clinic where I grew up. And that was one of the first times I realized how important symbolism is and being able to identify and be able to see yourself in someone else. And so this African-American man was an example of somebody that I thought said, I can do that. And so that set me along the path to getting good grades. I went to Rutgers College in New Jersey met my wife there and we both went to Rutgers. I joined ROTC because my family didn't have any money and that was the way to pay for college. I also worked full-time while I was in college, graduated with a degree in physics and a commission as a second lieutenant and joined the reserves and went to dental school. And so I went to University of Pittsburgh Dental School. My wife went to Pitt Law School. We were still dating then. And I served my reserve time for four years. At that point, I was trying to figure out what else I want to do. And I actually applied to come on active duty in the Army as I finished dental school. So in the reserve component, commissioned as an MSC. And then when I finished my DMD program, I applied to branch transfer and to come on active duty in a one-year AGD slot. That was around the end of the first Gulf War. And the Army was downsizing. They were purging dentists. So my application to come on active duty and do a one-year AGD was denied. I had simultaneously applied for oral and maxillofacial surgery residency program in the civilian sector and was accepted to the program out at uh, Martin Luther King Hospital in Los Angeles. So concurrent with all this, I'm still in the reserves. I went out to California and I fulfilled the last four years of my eight-year obligation for ROTC in IRR. Fast forward, we were married at that point when I went to residency. And so when I finished my residency out in California, 
I was concurrent with with the completion of my reserve obligation for scholarship. It was at that point that I said, hey, you know, I, I really don't want to be in private practice. What I really enjoy is the camaraderie, the group practice, and the opportunity to hone my skills. And so I came on active duty as a captain in 1997 out of the reserves with the thought of doing my three years because I'd already fulfilled my obligation for scholarship. My plan was to do three years, get a license, practice, and get out. And so my first assignment, and I had actually snowboarded that at Brook Army Medical Center and then went to OBC and then my first assignment in the NCR at Walter Reed and then part-time at DeWitt Hospital. And uh, the Army offered me the opportunity to do a fellowship. So I picked trauma. I went to UT 2001 to 2002, and we know what happened in September 2001. And so my follow-on assignment was at Bamsey. Again, thinking that I was going to do my obligation, my payback, and then get out. And it was at that point, towards the end of my obligation, that the Army offered me the opportunity. I'd been promoted to lieutenant colonel, and they offered me the opportunity to do CSL command. And it was also about the same time that we realized that we were pregnant with our daughter, who's now 17. And so, again, you know, these forks in the road. My wife allowed me the opportunity to go off and do Army stuff, and I went to 561st Medical Company. They had standing units as opposed to the the uh, MAP personnel. We had folks that were assigned to the unit, and we ended up deploying OIF. I, I say all this because I never planned on staying in. I almost got out every time, but the opportunities kept coming. And so when I completed uh, my tour in command, came back and was teaching, and I thought, well, th- this is great. I've done everything that I can do. Got promoted to colonel. And I was a program director, and I, I thought, this is great. I, I, I've reached the pinnacle of my career. I'd gotten the opportunity to go to Baylor in between there. So when I came back from uh, command, so I did the Baylor MHA, was teaching. And right around that time, I got offered the opportunity to go to HRC and be a dental corps branch chief. My wife and I looked at each other and said, okay, we'll move. And even then, I thought, okay, this is great. I'll learn. I'll come back because I'm, I'm an oral surgeon. I should be practicing and teaching, and that's what I enjoy. But I found out that I, I absolutely loved it. So command, deployment, working at HRC. And from there, that's when I got picked up for the senior service college, which you, you, you don't turn it down. Again, thinking, okay, this is a short term. This is a fluke. I'm going to go through this and then go back and teach. I got selected for Colonel CSL Command. And while selected for, while I was in Colonel CSL command, I got picked to come work for the, the chief of staff at MedCom, Mr. Goodman at the time. And after a year at MedCom as the deputy chief of staff, I got selected as a one star. So there were several points in my career where I thought for sure I'm done. This is great, but I'm a surgeon or I'm this or I'm that. And so you asked me what kept me around after my initial commitment. It was the opportunity to do different things, to have fun, to engage with people in an authentic way where I could be true to myself. And those are the things that kind of kept me in. So let's rewind a little bit back to when you finished your clinical training and you did your fellowship in trauma at UT in Houston. Oral maximal facial surgeons are part of the current deployable head and neck team. Can you tell us a little about the role of the OMF surgeon and what kind of things do they take care of on the battlefield? The specialty of oral and maxillofacial surgeries, you know, in America, there it's a dental specialty. In, in Europe, it's a medical specialty. And it, it involves taking care of diseases, injuries, and deformities of the face and related structures. And so, Typically, trauma is one of the main reasons that we have oral and maxillofacial surgeons 
in the Army. That's the role that we play. And so typically we're on the head and neck team. Depending on the training, they can do everything from maxillofacial injuries to gunshot wounds to blast injuries. What oral surgeons tend to be really good at is hard tissue, hard tissue injuries, bony injuries. Oral surgeons tend to be the experts in airway. By the way, most people know, you know, most people's experience with with LMS is wisdom teeth, right? And so we work in the airway all the time. And so oral surgeons, for example, typically are credentialed to do anesthesia. So that's that's an adjunct kind of service that we provide. So tell us about some interesting cases or challenging cases you had that you personally cared for during your career. So the first case I remember during fellowship was an unfortunate incident of a model who had was severely depressed, young lady who was severely depressed and was a self-inflicted shotgun wound to the face, which, of course, a shotgun is a long gun. And what what people often do is they flinch and they miss and they tear everything up, but they fail to expire, which is not a bad thing. However, horrible injury. It was my introduction to fellowship. Now, I trained in South Central Los Angeles. I had seen, as a resident, hundreds of gunshot wounds. It was shocking, but it was also an opportunity where I really felt like I was making a difference. But it taught me a lot about the fact that, you know, we're not perfect. I remember the case because because it was so sad. And we saw a lot of that, a lot lot of depressed people out there. So I saw a lot of self-inflicted gunshot wounds as opposed to the war injuries that I saw in, in South Central LA and the ones that I'd seen downrange. With regard to cases that I've seen downrange and you know, cases that I've seen in the Army, one of the most gratifying cases I remember. So when I was uh, commander of the 561st and when I was deployed, the head and neck teams were always short. So I would go in on, on Saturdays and I would volunteer and see patients or you know give the head and neck guys an extra set of hands. And there was a, a young uh, truck driver, 88 Mike, who had gotten blown up, ID injury, face blast. And I actually ended up seeing him several years later when I was at Bamsey as a program director. And it was just very gratifying to see someone you've, you've seen downrange, you see them at their worst, and then you get to see them when they've been, been rehabilitated and recovered. And I didn't remember him. He remembered me, but I almost didn't recognize him because when I saw him at first, we were taking care of the soft tissue, doing the lavage, and then sending them back to launch stool. But after we talked and I, I remembered who he was, I remembered his name. It was just very gratifying to, to be able to see the impact of what you're able to do for somebody. So when you were deployed with the 561st, you were the commander there. What was your unit's role in that theater? So the dental company provided area dental support or theater dental support for the troops. So we had seven clinics spread out over northern Iraq. And basically my job was to make sure that they were meeting standards, making sure they're taking care of patients, making sure they're taking care of each other and, and provide oversight. And then also to be the liaison for the Corps to coordinate the the care for the internationals and, and then the uh, the credentialing and any and I provided consultation services because I was free chicken I was a free oral surgeon and so volunteered my services there but as area dental support was our mission so our, our audience will likely understand the importance of you know maintaining good dental care but I would suspect that in a deployed environment there are unique challenges providing that downrange care and you know maybe even in more austere environments. Can you comment on that at all? Yeah. So the thing about it is dentistry, just like a lot of 
specialty areas, you're only good with these. You're only good with your hands if you have the equipment. And so it requires a lot of logistics. That, that was the biggest surprise. But in terms of the care, there's always a balance between providing the best possible care, but also being quick. And by being quick, meaning you're there to preserve combat power. But the challenge that I always saw, and I'm, t- I'm speaking as a dentist, and it's the same with a lot of specialties, the kind of person that becomes a dentist is very detail-oriented, very exact, wants to get everything right. And sometimes you have to teach people that then in the theater of combat, you want to provide high-quality care, but you have to be responsive, you have to be agile, because you've got you've to gotta make sure that you get that soldier, sailor, airman, whoever it is, back in the fight. You have served as the program director for the oral and maxillofacial surgery residency program, as you mentioned earlier, at Joint Base San Antonio, Fort Sam Houston. How important is maintaining military graduate medical education programs within the military at these centers versus conducting that same training in civilian sector? I will tell you, I think unequivocally that, that graduate medical education, graduate dental education, graduate health education writ large is the lifeblood of our military health for a couple of reasons. One, because everyone that we recruit, for the most part, they could be doing something else. Every last one of us that has a healthcare background could be doing something else, which means we, as an army, as a military health system, are competing for talent with every other system that's out there in the civilian world. And so how do you create a value proposition for a person to come in and want to stay? And I think training is one of the linchpins of that. I can tell you as the dental corps chief, we do frequent surveys of what keeps people in, and training is one of the best tools we have to bring people in and retain them and retain the best. I would also say that that it provides a, a high value for us in terms of the kind of training, the kind of doctor, nurse, whatever you get after you do a military residency, because you're not just training them on the technical skills, which you can do anywhere, but you're training them in an environment that is culturally relevant to the military. And so I talk often as the the Corps Chief about, I talk to our young officers about understanding that they're part of a dual profession. We are not civilian providers that wear a uniform. We are soldiers who happen to have a very specialized technical skill. And we exist to serve the warfighter. And the moment that we forget that, we become irrelevant. And so graduate education is, I think, is a linchpin to us maintaining relevancy. So when someone completes their dental training through dental school and then they, say, work for a few years, what options are available to dentists to further their education? You mentioned that you did oral and maxillofacial surgery. What other options are available to dentists in the military? We train all of the traditional specialties that exist within the civilian sector. Uh, Plus, we offer fellowships, like I did a trauma fellowship, and there are folks that do maxillofacial prostate fellowships or anaplastic, you know, folks. And then what is really awesome is once they've done their residency training and gotten their boards for their traditional civilian specialty, I say in air quotes, we have dental officers, for example, like myself, that go on to do a CGSC, the War College, so that they're prepared, like I talked about, for that dual professional role. So I think the opportunities, they're at multiple levels, educationally, and then in terms of their military professional education, those are other opportunities as well. Masters of Healthcare Administration is another great example. You mentioned that one of your key developmental positions was being at the Human Resources Command for the Dental Corps branch. What kind of unique 
opportunities are out there for dental core officers? And why was that such a key position in your career progression? Quite simply because it was the first time in my professional career where I could see the landscape of the entire AMED and understand how the profession of dentistry, while important, is only one small component of the AMED and how Army medicine, as important as it is, is only one small component of the Army. And so, you know, when I would sit there at HRC in Health Services Division, I had the opportunity to make assignments, to crosstalk with other branches, to crosstalk with our line officer branches to see how do they make assignments? What did they do? How did they develop officers and how do they develop their enlisted for their career paths? And it was very, very enlightening because before that, I had only worked in kind of the siloed either dental world or part of the AMED world. And for me, that was very exciting. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot about not just what we do, but again, what are we for? Right? We serve the warfighter. And so understanding that helps helps you understand your value proposition and keeps you relevant. In terms of, of looking at opportunities for dentists, it also enlightened me to just how many things are out there that people have no idea they can apply for. And so one of the things that I tried to do as the dental core branch chief was publish the information. Anytime I saw what they would call black book assignments, where they would be, we would get a call from HRC somewhere uh, and they would say, we're looking for a left-handed ologist who has this background, who's deployed and, and has ILE. And you have to very quickly look down the list to see who's available to move, who has the right education, who has the right qualifications. But oftentimes I found that those, unless you make a, a conscious effort the population doesn't necessarily know that those opportunities exist. And I pushed very hard, constantly put out information to let people know what fellowships are available. For example, a few years ago, we had a dentist who went to the Brookings Institution Fellow. We've had people go to the Harvard Kennedy School. And that is useful. They come back as better officers, not better dentists. They come back as better army officers. And that's what I tried to create is this sense of not just what we do, but what are we for? You're currently the chief of the Army Dental Corps. What are the current challenges of preparing a ready medical force and a medically ready force from your perspective? So number one, I'm not worried about our dentists being able to provide care. I think we have very solid systems in place. Our recruiting is great, partially because like everyone else, it's expensive to go to dental school, just like it's expensive to go to, to medical school. And so I'm not worried about that pipeline. Where I do see a challenge for us I say, you know, Army dentistry is a few years ago, we had command called U.S. Army Dental Command. And the court chief, if the court chief needed to do something, they would, MedCom CG would say, make something happen. Court chief would turn to the MedCom, the DENCOM commander and they would execute. And then DENCOM went away. And so there was really no centralized hub operating company model. And it's kind of like, you know, G357 has the dental directorate. So is the core chief. How do I influence and, and execute my Title X responsibilities effectively? We'll work through that. I think as we work through the transformation of what the future of MedCom is going to look like and then the, and the medical readiness commands, that's one challenge. I'm not as concerned. I think that there's, there's goodness in forcing change. And one of those changes has been the elimination of a silo of dentists only command dental units. And so for this past year, 
Well, right now, for the first time ever, we have a lieutenant colonel commanding a field hospital. On the most recent CSL board, we had several lieutenant colonels picked up for AMED immaterial commands. They'll be slated, you know, in non-dental commands. And we had one colonel picked up for immaterial. So this is something that is a cultural shift that I think people have been ready for. I've gotten a lot of pushback, as you can imagine, because change is hard. It's a change in culture. But I think over time, it's going to bear fruit because we, we have very smart people. And it's the best thing for the AMED to have all the smart people out on an even playing field. Now, it does create some challenges because there really are dental pure positions that we have to fill. And so as we bleed off more talented people to do other things, one of the challenges that I'm having now is to figure out what do we stop doing? Because we only have so many people, and if we have these dental pure positions that have to be filled, either because it requires a particular kind of expertise or it's a small uh, size element and it requires a dentist, then we've got to figure out what to turn off, what to combine, where do we take risk. And certainly, as I said before, graduate education, I take that as, as we can't accept risk there. So what, what do we shut off in terms of dental pure opportunities in order to provide an environment that forces people to play with the rest of the AMED? And that culture change is the thing that I've been working on the past three and a half years. So speaking of non or immaterial non-dental commands, you were the commander of Brook Army Medical Center. And you've also had several senior leadership positions in the Army Medical Command. How would you describe your leadership philosophy? And for those, you know, clinicians who may have similar leadership, military leadership aspirations, what advice would you give to them? I'll talk about my leadership philosophy. So I think of leadership in four domains. So I think in order to be a good leader, you first need to understand that it is about the first L, which is who are you as a leader? All of us have our strengths, our weaknesses. We have biases. We have heuristic things that we go by and, and because we're human beings. And there's nothing wrong with that, except you have to recognize that you have biases. <laughs> and so it requires a lot of self-examination, understanding your core values, understanding what triggers you so that you can avoid it. I go back to Aristotle's on rhetoric, which is a treatise on the art of persuasion. And Aristotle described three characteristics of really was a good rhetorician, which is basically how do you convince someone of something? But I think it applies to leadership. And he described it in three ways. Logos, which is logic. So a good leader is generally well-spoken, communicates well, communicates clearly at all levels. Ethos. Are you trustworthy? When you tell people something, as a leader, sometimes you have to tell people things they don't want to hear. But as long as they trust you, that's what matters. And pathos, passion. Leaders have to have a passion for, for leadership. You have to you have to be able to inspire people to action. I mean, it's a method. You, you can enforce compliance, but that's not leadership. Leadership is about engaging people where they are and bringing them along to support your vision. And Aristotle didn't say this one, but I would also add a fourth domain, which is which is mythos. And by that, I mean, what is the story about? So I will tell you that every place that I've ever been as a leader, my reputation, people knew my reputation before I showed up. And, and I one thing that I kind of surprised me, I kind of knew it, but it, it, it surprised me the, the higher up I've gotten is how much your reputation precedes you. And if in that reputation is your currency coming in the door. So that's leader, understanding who you are. Then I would say 
understanding where you are in your life cycle is also very important. You can do anything, but you can't do everything. And all of us have a timeline. And so I think as people are laying out what is it, what it is that they want to do and how they want to do it, they've got to figure out how it sequences in with their age, their family life. What are the other things that they want to do? And be realistic about how far they can go or how far they think they want to go and what those sacrifices are. Because there's nothing worse than achieving great things and then finding out you left your family behind. As I said before, I, I never planned on staying in this long. And I had some great opportunities. But at every turn, I had to turn to my wife and my daughter and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to be a geo bachelor. You know, I'm gonna do, we're going to do this, but this means I've got to go to D.C. while you're in San Antonio. And I was a geo bachelor for two and a half years while I was at OTSG flying home every other weekend. And, and that was OK. But everybody can't do that. So and then I would talk I would say that the third L is legacy. All of us need need help. None of us gets where we are by. And, and the only reason that I am where I am is because at a very young age, I saw an image of someone that I identified that I could really see myself. And so one of the things that has been very important to me, and, and by the way, I'm the first African-American army dentist to make general officer. And, and the dental corps has been around for 100, 112 years. I say that only because it's not about me, but I also realized that had I been born 50 years earlier, my degree, my pedigree, my personality, my skills would have been meaningless in the context of a society that was not ready to promote somebody who in the past was viewed as being someone at the margin. I am not the first African-American who was smart enough, had enough drive energy. It's timing. And it's also about the fact that I've had people of all races, of all creeds and colors, have been good mentors for me and helped me see farther down the road than I could see on my own. And so as you get more senior, you have a responsibility to reach back and help others. Number one, because it's the right thing to do. But number two, if you're a good leader, you want to lead the organization better than how you found it. And the way you do that is by taking care of others who can then replace you. And I would say the fourth thing is lifelong learning. You know, adult learning is a combination of your formal schooling and then your on-the-job training. And the third thing that a lot of people miss out on is this kind of directed self-learning. I think it's it's for those who say they are professional. We're all professionals. We're medical professionals or dental professionals, but we're also in the profession of arms. And in any profession, I think it's really important to commit to the lifelong learning journey, knowing that you will never know anything like enough. There's that saying that the Dunning-Kruger curve, the, the less you know, the more confident you are. And then the more you know, the more you realize what you didn't know. And every day I discover more and more about myself as a leader, about the organizations that I've become a part of. And I think having that native curiosity of always wanting to know more is extremely valuable if you're going to call yourself a professional. So you mentioned knowing yourself as a leader, and I'm going to press you on that. So you talked about figuring out things that trigger you. So what is it that triggers you and how do you deal with it? <laughs> well, a couple of things. So number one, I know that if I don't get enough sleep, I don't make good decisions. So I make it a, a conscious effort to, well, I make a conscious effort to leave the office every day by four o'clock. Now, there are times when I will come home, eat dinner and take the dog back in. But I've learned that if, if I'm not getting rest, then probably my team's not getting rest either. And I've just forced myself to have discipline because I'm a night owl. But I've learned that if I do that too much, especially as I get older, I will not make good decisions in, during the day. 
I've also learned I need to eat at regular times. And these are very simple things, but they make a difference. If you know your eating patterns, your sleep patterns, I like to lift weights. That's how I meditate. I like to cook. And by the way, and you didn't really ask this, but one of the things I've always struggled with is this thing about work-life balance. And people talk about how do you have work-life balance? I don't think there is such a thing. And I have always thought that instead of trying to find work-life balance, I try to look at... because. The opposite of work is not life, it's leisure. And the opposite of life is not work, it's death. And so I think of work-work balance. And and what I mean is that there is work that I do because I'm required to do it for the job. And there are tasks that just have to get done. And then there's work that I do because it's either like mentorship time or it's reading, professional reading, personal reading, uh, visiting with people. There's work that I do that I really enjoy. And so one of the things that you asked me what triggers me is just working for the sake of working. And as I gotten more senior, I try to carve out time to do the things um, that I find enjoyable that still work, but I, that I find enjoyable. For example, as the CG of Bamsey, I made sure that, you know, it's, it's obviously in a, in a large institution, you have people that work all different hours. It's not a nine to five type of organization. And as I said earlier, I try to leave the office because I know if I don't leave the office, then the staff feels like they can't leave. But I would make time every week and I would alternate between Friday, Saturday and Sunday nights. And I would alternate time. So I would make sure that I would come in on a weekend, at you know, from like nine to 11 p.m. And then the following weekend, I would visit at two to four a.m. And I would make sure that I would I had a rule and I would tell my people, my deputies, hey, I need you to give me at least three people to recognize in each you know, area, section, unit, whatever it was. And, and that's work, but it's something that I enjoy and it, and it feeds me and, it, and I get more back. And so, uh, you know, trying to est- trying to establish that kind of work, work balance, fun and then, you know, tasks, I think is very important for me. So you've clearly learned a lot of leadership lessons during your military career. And you deployed as commander of the 561st. And then fast forward, you have you were the commander of BAMSI, which is the only level one trauma center. There's far more field grade officer physicians than there are general officer physicians. What advice, if you just were to give one piece of advice to field grade officer Bagby prior to taking that command in the 561st, what would you tell him that you now know having been the commander of BAMSI I would say a couple of things. Be comfortable with being uncomfortable is the biggest thing. Some of the best advice I ever got was from Major General Retired David Rubenstein. And I asked him, I said, sir, how do you learn to be successful as a field grade officer? And he said that in his experience, I'll never forget this, the officers that seem to do the best are the ones who are the most comfortable with ambiguity. And that is hard to do, but I think that is if you can learn to be comfortable in the midst of chaos, not try and have all the answers, but sometimes you have to let it wash over you, go, okay, take a breath, and then have a plan. And oftentimes it starts with listening twice as much as you speak. Because as I said earlier, one of the things that's been interesting is as a GO, I haven't had any job where I've been the expert. I have had to rely on experts for their advice. And ultimately, I had to make the decisions and I had to accept the risk. But you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable and you have to be comfortable with ambiguity. Yeah, I think that you know, Wayne and I as physicians, you know, we think that we're pretty easy to lead because we just kind of do stuff and we do our job. And personally, been in some leadership position, leading physicians can be like herding cats. And it's hard enough when they're part of your tribe, but 
you come into a huge institution like Bamsi and you got dentist as your credential, did that make any unique challenges or, or problems or more tough or easier? Honestly, I heard rumors. I heard buzz about that the first day. Like I heard somebody, actually one of my Baylor former Baylor classmates who happened to work at Bamsi said, hey, I heard somebody say we're getting a dentist as our hospital commander. And that I think that went away like the first 72 hours because the just plain truth is, you know, what they needed was a leader. And I went in and I at least I hope I showed my team that I'm here to lead. And what does that look like? It doesn't look like a degree. It's the behaviors. It's the attributes that we show as leaders, because at the end of the day, even a physician in a hospital, they're not there to be the best physician in the hospital. They're there to be the best leader as the commander. And so I honestly didn't have any problems. I think part of it is because I tried to engage with with people where they are. There's lots of smart people at BAMSI. There are lots of smart people in the AMED, but we're all bound by our own experiences. So no matter how smart someone is, we as collectively are smarter together than any one of us. And and that's the message I tried to get across to folks. Congress has mandated a transformation of military medicine with talks of downsizing and civilianizing some care. Where do you see the Army Dental Corps evolving in the next five to 10 years? So we went through this drill when I was the Deputy Commanding General for Support, where we took a look by the eaches at all the locations where we have dental services. And we did the analysis to say, could this be outsourced? And honestly, the, the analysis we came back with was no, primarily because, as you are well aware, there are certain specialties that we train in military medicine because there aren't enough in the country if we had to outsource. Also, there is a readiness requirement that we can outsource certain kinds of treatment to the network, but you can't outsource the readiness care. The commercial sector, unless the unless there's a huge incentive and incentives drive behavior, unless the, the military health system decides to completely upend and change its, its incentive structure, there's no scenario that I can see where uh, the civilian sector is going to pick up that mission because it's just not profitable. We're not for profit. Our measures of effectiveness are not necessarily how much money we make, but how much readiness we can generate and that there's a price tag to it. So from that perspective, I don't see that changing very much. I do think that there is a there is a a good case to be made for maybe looking at some of our training platforms and saying, why do we have an army residency here and right across the town we have the same residency that the Air Force does? I, I think there are some efficiencies that we can create internally. I do see that. But I think overall, as long as we serve the Army mission or the Air Force mission, Navy mission, we will have a readiness case and as long as we have a readiness case, we need to preserve readiness, I think we'll have a force. How large it is, that's debatable. So I met at church an active duty dentist several years ago, and since then he and I have become friends. And I asked him to send me some questions that he might ask you if he was in my shoes to, for this. And he had a really good one I think I'd like to ask you. Are there any specific people that impacted your career, and how can army dentists and army physicians do the same in their day-to-day clinic assignments? That's a wonderful question. So a couple of things. Like I said earlier, the dentist who I met when I was eight years old, that showed me that I could be more than my environment. On active duty, I've had a number of people, general officers, senior enlisted, civilians, 
all of whom I have been able to pick. And, and, and by the way, they, my mentors, you know, are a rainbow, a variety of people. Some are military, some are not, some are male, female, black, white, Asian, whatever. But what they all have in common is that we share a, a value system. There was something about them that I could see myself wanting to take from or to, or to learn from. So how can army officers, physicians in particular, impact the careers of those people that they work along with on their day-to-day clinic operation assignments? So the first thing is, again, going back to being a good leader, is knowing yourself, understanding that, that wherever you are, somebody is looking up to you by virtue of your rank, by virtue of your education, where you stand and how you carry yourself in the world impacts people's lives. So the first thing I would say is under, understand how people see you. Understand that when somebody comes in and they're a captain, they're still an army captain. And to that young soldier, that young private or whoever they're working with or the, that patient, they are someone of authority. And I think I, I don't know that people really understand that. As a clinician, there's inherent respect for people who have an advanced education, understanding how that impacts people. And then being approachable, being the kind of person that people want to emulate and be around, be someone who, again, goes back to is logical, ethical, and passionate about their work. And I think that is where you can attract people to your cause. And people see that your values match, they will want to be like you. And those are the kinds of people that can do that successfully, I think will will always be the kinds of people that others will want to be around. You've completed Army Airborne course in your career. What do you see as the value of this and similar military schools and the professional development of the military, medical, dentist, physician, other officers? So in terms of skill badges, we talked before about being part of the dual profession. And, and we know that it's a requirement for us to, to be professionally qualified in, in our civilian skill. And, but those are typically not things that we wear. <laughs> and then there's the then there's the military side. And I've heard the, the MedCom Sergeant Major, I've heard other people say too that like the EFMB, that is our badge. That is the that is the sign that we have achieved, you know, prominence in our field. And for our listeners who may not be familiar with EFMB, that's the expert field medical badge. Thank you. And and so airborne training, air assault training. Those are the things that, that help us stay relevant to the Army. And part of, part of that dual profession and balancing out our medical, dental, you know, health skills with our Army skills, I think, makes us more relevant. I think that it makes it so that when you walk into the room and you are with military people, that you are then recognized as being one of them. I think it goes a long way towards giving us the military health system credibility. So you mentioned that one of your leadership L's was legacy. What I'd like to ask you is, let's say one of your family members listens to this podcast 50, 100 years from now, somehow they find it on the internet. What is it that you would want to tell them about your career in army medicine? I would say to look at what I did and understand that I see myself as someone who's very lucky, that I started out thinking of myself as an oral and maxillofacial facial surgeon. But what I discovered along the way and what has kept me in the Army is the understanding that I'm simply a person who tries to do good for other people. I was fortunate enough to find an environment where my skills and my personality were useful. And rather than being a descriptor of what I do, who I am is a lucky guy with uh, some decent degrees, who enjoys working with great people in an environment, smart people, 
an environment of being able to drive change and solve tough problems. And I hope that that's the legacy people will see. We've been speaking with Brigadier General Sean Bagby. Sir, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insight with us on WarDocs. And thank you for your service. Thank you. I appreciate you as well. Thanks thanks for your service as well. You have been listening to part one of our WarDocs interview with Army Brigadier General Sean Bagby. We hope you get an opportunity to listen to part two of the interview with this true military medical hero on WarDocs podcast when it becomes available. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of WarDocs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team WarDocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, WarDocs has you covered. Spread the word.